Thank you for the privilege to share the scriptures with you all this evening. I'm asking you to turn with me, please, to Isaiah, the great Old Testament prophet. We're going to recognize that in Isaiah 53, we're actually picking up an oracle, a prophecy that already has begun in chapter 52. And so for our scripture reading tonight, I'm going to read it in the sections in which we study it. Because it's such a magnificent passage that by the time we get it to the end, we've forgotten what we've read. There's so much going on, so it's better to take it a step at a time. So let's begin by looking at the first part of the great suffering servant oracle of Isaiah 52 and 53. We're going to begin reading at verses 13 through 15. Please hear the reading of God's word as we begin at Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we would ask that by your word and through your Holy Spirit, we would be drawn close to the one of whom Isaiah prophesied so many centuries before the coming of Christ. We ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. As we introduce this passage, let us remember that we are in a study that takes a look at how Jesus told us to go back to the Old Testament and see him in the entirety of the Old Testament canon. We found that in Luke 24. He said, all of the law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, they speak of me. That's what he said. Now, it's interesting as we look at Isaiah to fulfill that, that the name Isaiah it may, it comes from two Hebrew words. Isaiah is a real person. There's a basketball player that has the name Isaiah. It's a biblical name that's been taken by uh, a wonderful player. Isaiah, Isa, the first part, is the basis of the name Jesus, Jesus. It's the Hebrew word for salvation. And the last part of the name of Isaiah is the first part of the name for God, the Lord of the Old Testament, the I am that I am. We say short Yahweh, the old traditional way, Jehovah. And so this name of Isaiah really means the I am that I am saves. Isn't that amazing? This book has so much about the doctrine of salvation that the great ancient church father, St. Augustine, or you Floridians talk about St. Augustine. You can decide which is the right way to say it. I had a professor that said, remember, St. Augustine is in heaven and St. Augustine is in Florida. So, But you can decide whether you agree with that highbrow pronunciation or not. But however you say it, St. Augustine is called uh, calls this book the fifth gospel. He says, we have a gospel in the Old Testament. Well, if you really number it as the fifth gospel, maybe we should call it the first gospel. 
And then Matthew's the second, third, fourth, and fifth gospel. Why would we say that? Well, in Isaiah, the book that means our Lord saves, Yahweh saves, we find here the story of a virgin who will give birth to a child in chapter 7. The story of a son who will come, who's the mighty God, the everlasting father, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. We here see, as we'll study tonight, about a suffering servant who saves by his suffering. It will talk about a future glorious kingdom and about the global evangelization of the good news around the world. In fact, we won't do it tonight, but I looked up each of the references that allude or quote Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. And a majority of this chapter is picked up in the New Testament. One passage after another. We'll use it. We'll appeal to some of those. Now, as we get ready to look at this verse uh, that's in front of us, we want to remember that the Jewish tradition has struggled with this passage. Christians have celebrated it. It's found, as we said many times in the New Testament, alluded to or quoted. Perhaps the most amazing story comes to us in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip is out in the middle of nowhere. The Spirit of the Lord led him into the desert of all places when he was having a revival. Why there? Well, lo and behold, a man from Ethiopia comes through. And when you're in the desert and someone crosses by, you can't miss each other. I mean, there's nobody there but you too. And as he comes up to him, he hears him reading, of all places, Isaiah 53. An Ethiopian eunuch, that means he was a member of the royalty of the Ethiopian uh, palace, said, who's this one that he's speaking about? And Philip preaches to him, Jesus. In other words, it was already understood in the apostolic age that Isaiah 53 is a story about the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is interesting, our Jewish friends, and we believe our Jewish friends are friends, we are Jewish Christians. True Christianity is Jewish. This chapter that we're reading tonight is never read in the Jewish synagogue. It is sometimes called the bad conscience of the synagogue. Sometimes it's called the forbidden chapter. And there are various ways in which our Jewish friends try to explain why this chapter is not read. But honest historians who, from the Jewish tradition say, it was read in the synagogue until about the 16th century. Now you might ask the question, what happened in the 16th century? Reformation. Guess what? The Reformation said, go back to the Bible and read it. And they started reading the Bible, and guess what they found? Isaiah 53. They said, our Jewish friends, the Messiah and his future ministry is here. And according to some, it caused such tension and theological discussion that they simply quietly have left it out of their readings in the synagogue. By the way, the other story of Jesus reading, remember, in his hometown of Nazareth, when he reads from Isaiah chapter 60, where he says, these words are fulfilled in your hearing, those two are no longer read in a Jewish synagogue. They are not part of the 
what's called the Haftarah, which is the readings that follow after the, the first books of Moses. Well, with that background in mind, realizing that it's tremendously important in Christianity, it is something that is difficult for our Jewish friends to engage, and they have their way of interpreting it, which we won't look at tonight. Let's zero in on the words we've just read from the beginning. Notice it starts in verse 13 with the word behold. It says, take a close look at what I'm about to say. Wake up and pay attention. It's about my servant. And now notice as the Lord begins to give this revelation, he puts it in the future tense. So we have prophecy. He's saying this is something that has not happened yet, but it will. We date Isaiah perhaps as many as 800 years before Christ. This is a long time before the coming of Jesus. And Isaiah is speaking and he says, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were. Now he jumps into the past tense. So remember, as God is speaking prophetically, God is outside of time. He can speak in the future tense, the past tense, and the present tense in one sweep. And we actually find that in these verses. The future, he shall, he shall, he shall, as many were. Now he's looking from the vantage point of the future, looking back at something that's the past. And what's remarkable is it says, and as many were astonished at you. Who's this you? Now the Hebrew language is actually more precise than the English language. When I say you, I could be talking to Pastor Patrick, you, or I could be talking to all of you at the same time and you're not sure. You have to figure out what I mean. In the Hebrew language, there's a difference between you singular and you plural. And this is a you singular. He's looking at someone who he's talking to face to face. I would like to suggest that this passage is the Lord saying, I'm going to tell you what the future is. And then he stops as he's talking. It's as if he looks at the second person of the Trinity and says, I'm, I'm talking about you. You've already finished your work. They were astonished at you. People were overwhelmed with what you did. And then he moves from that personal you to a third person, his. And it's back in the past tense. Okay, it's quite remarkable as you watch future, past, present. It moves together. God's outside of time. A prophetic text. And he says, as many as were astonished at you, that is the servant, he then stops and says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He said, the reason that people were so astonished at you, that you were so assaulted and attacked, that you almost didn't look human anymore with the beatings, the struggle, and attack. This is describing the Passion Week of Christ. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So that is his passion, his suffering. And now back to the future tense. So shall he sprinkle many nations. This one that's utterly been assaulted and harmed so that he's unable to be looked at, he's so harmed. He is going to bring his blessing to the nations of the world and sprinkle them, if you will, with his sacrifice. The word sprinkling it takes us right into the atonement language of the Old Testament sacrifice. And as this 
Uh, sprinkling takes place of nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. They, the very leaders of nations will hear about him, and they won't talk about themselves. They will simply be in awe at who he is. They'll shut their mouths. For that which has not been told them, that is, they had never heard it until the message came. Notice now, they see. It's in the present tense. This is now in a future mission context. They're going to see what they had not seen. They'll see the story. And what they have not heard, they now understand. So this preamble gives us a sweep of Christ's passion, his blessing, and it's reaching the world, past, present, and future. And the Lord is describing it for us. But he first described it to the Messiah himself. They were astonished at you. This is what God the Father said to His Son, and He's letting us in on His counsel. Theologians might call it the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Well, you see, that paragraph sets the stage. Whatever He's going to say next must be remarkable if that's its backdrop. So we begin to look at this passage, and there are several things that we can see here. First, uh, we'll look at... Uh, the uh, outline, and we've looked at these first few verses, verses 13 to 15. We call that our first point and call it the future, the past, and the present from God's perspective regarding his servant. God can look at the work of Christ from the future, the past, and the present all at the same time. And he gives us that. With that background, then, two questions are raised. So our second point are two questions They're raised in verse 1. These questions will be used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16. And here's the question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Two questions. Now we might ask the question, who has believed what he has heard? What is it that he's heard? And who is it from us? The us seems to be from God's message and from his people, his prophet, like Isaiah. Isaiah speaking for God. But in the context, what is it that he's asking that they've heard and whether they believed it? Well, go back in chapter 52, just a few verses. And if you look carefully in this chapter, you might hear words you've heard before in uh, verse 7 and following. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Have they believed what they've heard? The good news? Good news is used twice. When the Greek language translates this passage, it uses the Greek word that you actually know. You may not know you know it, but it's the word euangelizo. Do you know what word we get from that? Evangelical. Have you ever heard of an evangelical? You might say, hey, I guess I am an evangelical. That's the word for good news. When you say, I'm an evangelical, you say, I'm a person that is giving good news to the world. The good news of Jesus. By the way, there's four New Testament Gospels. Do you know what the word gospel means? 
It's Old English for the good to spell. Spelling out good news. Okay. What we're seeing here is a gospel passage. The good news is prophesied. And the question then is having a whole panorama, past, present, and future presented. Two questions are asked, and they're about the gospel. Who has believed what he has heard from us? That is the good news that comes from the Father that has been brought by Isaiah that's about his servant, his son. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, when this message is presented, it's not just the message. God's strong arm, his sovereignty, is the one that reveals it so that blinded eyes can see. What a great testimony. Blinded eyes see. Deaf ears hear. Dead hearts come alive. That was of the Lord tonight. But you the word providence. That was a providential testimony. The arm of the Lord is revealed when the good news, and that's why salvation happens through faith. The good news is heard. People believe it because the arm of the Lord has worked to create life. Okay? So the first point, the past, present, and future, as God looks at his Messiah. The two questions that set up what follows next. Who's going to believe this message? Why does it happen? And that's going to be addressed in a certain way. So the first question is asked this way. Why is this Messiah not to be recognized? Why is it that when he comes, they're not going to accept him? Remember, this is the gospel before the gospel happened. He's going to come, and he's going to come unto his own, and his own will receive him not. What do we read here in verses 2 and 3? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, first of all, he was born on the wrong side of the tracks. He wasn't born in a palace. You mean he was born and placed into a feeding stall and a manger? And he had to run for his life to Egypt lest he be destroyed? This can't be anybody's king. This is a homeless, vagrant family. And when we looked at him, he didn't, we didn't see someone that was exceptionally tall like Saul of the Old Testament. He just was kind of a normal guy. Just a typical person. Could easily overlook him. Blends in the crowd. And further, as he comes on the scene, not only is he basically overlooked, but he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In other words, there were those that wanted to kill him very early in his ministry and they hounded him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy and tried to take him home. They mocked him at different points. He was acquainted with grief. Here he was, someone that was trying to do God's work, and they would not listen to him. He wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would bring you unto myself, just like a hen takes her chicks under his wings. But you would not. He wept at Lazarus' grave. Oh, the tears he must have shed as he suffered, as he was being abused and beaten and rejected and mocked and lied. And he was as one from whom men hid their faces. Don't you remember all of his disciples fled? So we don't know him. They hid their faces. 
He was despised, and we esteemed him not. These are now the words of the people to whom the good news had come. They did not accept him. They did not receive him. Okay, so what we see is why then was he not recognized? Because from a human vantage point, he was not someone that compelled faith that they would believe. Well, what happens next? Our fourth point. First point, future, past, and present from God's perspective regarding his servant. Verses 13 and 15 of chapter 52. The two questions about faith. Verse 1, chapter 53. The third, why was he not recognized as a Messiah? Verses 2 and 3, which we've just read, which brings us to point 4. It's all part of his saving substitution. We read now in the next verses, verses 4 and 5, that what was happening in this person who came, who is the good news, it was a saving substitution that was necessary for the good news to work. So, we take a look at verses 4 and 5. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord's prophecy is now saying, this is what Israel will come to understand when they come to understand the Messiah. It is absolutely sure. He has borne our griefs. The grief He suffered was really our grief. And he was carrying our grief, our burdens. He took on himself. Our sorrows. He has carried them. Yet when we looked at him, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We looked at him before we understood what he came to do and said, he deserves it. He claimed to make himself equal with God. He's worthy of being stoned, being put to death for blasphemy. He is someone that is causing ruckus and confusion and causing us endangerment with our Roman captors. They didn't understand why he came. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. How many wounds did Jesus have? Well, there's some big ones you can count, but we can't count them all. How many stripes and how many... Uh, thorns pierced his brow. They weren't for him. They were for our transgressions. They're for our violating the law of God. And he was crushed so much so that he could no longer even bear the cross. He collapsed in shock and someone had to carry his cross for him. That was not for his iniquities. It was for ours. So what we see here then is a substitutionary saving work in his suffering. And so what we find as we look carefully then is our fifth point, that we must see here the gospel of the cross of sacrifice. He was taking our guilt, our suffering, our grief, our sorrow. In verse 6, this is the good news. It's the good news of the cross as a saving sacrifice. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, in these words, everyone is extensively included. Everyone to whom this message come, we are like sheep without a shepherd, which go astray. We have turned 
everyone to his own way. It's not just that we're lost, but we intentionally do not listen to God's call on our lives. We are determined to do everything by ourselves, our way. Original sin, according to Martin Luther, is described as our hearts being turned in on themselves. We just want what we want. I need to be number one. Frank Sinatra sang it really well. I want to do it my way, not God's way. I want what I want, and I'm going to get what I want. We all are like this. And yet, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The weight of our sin as believers is placed upon him. In these words we see then the substitutionary work of the cross of Jesus Christ for not just the Jewish people who had rebelled, but for all of us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And so then we find in verses 7 to 9 then the prophecy of the passion of the Messiah. This is now our sixth point. The prophecy of the passion of the Messiah. Chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. Let's read them. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You read through the Passion Week how often he is beaten and he will not answer. He does not attack. He simply in quietness accepts the burden that's like him. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. When a lamb goes to the slaughter to be slain in a sacrifice, it doesn't fight. It just simply yields. It is helpless. It's the way Christ went to the cross. He didn't fight or resist it. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now remember, this is said seven or eight hundred years before Christ. You're reading the Gospel Passion Week. Here it is before your eyes. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In other words, he didn't cause anybody any problem. They came and persecuted him. They sought him out. They judged him falsely. And he was taken away and he was put in prison, put before various authorities. And for his generation, who considered, that is, his contemporaries, those that were around him when he was born, the people of his same age at the same time, as we look at that generation, the question is, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who even figured it out that the cross and all the passion was for the sin of God's people? They didn't figure that out. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. And the word cut off is a word for being put to death. He's oppressed and he's persecuted and he will be cut off. He will die. And people won't understand what he did. The prophecy of his suffering as the Messiah in his Passion Week is written out in long words. So much so that after he's cut off, it says in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now we look at those words, the concatenation, he's, he's with the wicked. Well, he's crucified and is dying between two thieves. They're dying for capital punishment, for crimes that they had done. And yet, he's with a rich man. 
Joseph of Marimathea says, I want this man in my tomb. A new tomb that never had been used. He came along. There was no guilt, no violence. Remember, Pilate washed his hands and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. I can't find any reason to condemn him. And there was no deceit in his mouth. He said, I am the way and the truth. Before Pilate, Pilate asked, what is truth? And there was the truth standing before him. So what we see here then is the prophecy of the passion of the Messiah. So as we unfold the flow of thought that goes before us, the preamble is the future past and present of Christ's suffering from God's perspective regarding his servant. Two questions. Why did they not believe? Has the Lord worked his arm to save them? Why was he not recognized as a Messiah? Because he looked just so normal and so plain. God couldn't do his work through them. But is his salvation through a substitutionary suffering, the gospel of the cross to sacrifice, and that is placed in the context of the passion of the Messiah. Now, let's pause for a moment before we complete our study. You ask the question, well, Luke 24, Jesus said, can you find me in the Old Testament? Look everywhere, you should see it. Well, I think we can see Jesus here. But you know what, if we take a moment and look a little bit closer, I think it'd be interesting if we did take a moment and look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 37. If you have your Bible, let's turn to that. Luke chapter 22. You remember, the doctor has good news, we've been told on several Sundays around here. And the doctor has good news in this quote of Jesus in Luke 22 and verse 37. Listen to what it says. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes it. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now that statement there, and he was numbered with the transgressors, that's from Isaiah 53. In fact, if we take a close look at it, we see it hinted at here where he is uh, making his grave with the wicked. But you can come down to verse 12 and read it just in parallel here of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Did you know that Jesus going to the cross said, Isaiah 53 is about me. And it must be fulfilled. Because it is God's declaration. In other words, this is not some attempt for us to foist this upon Jesus. He actually quoted this. What is the context in Luke 22? And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, he's not even at the cross yet. He's saying, I'm expecting to see Isaiah 53 fulfilled. This must happen. Why must it happen? 
because God has decreed it prophetically to take place. And Jesus knew it. And so Luke 24, when he says, go back and read all these things that's about me, he's giving us a hint to read this text precisely in the way we're reading it. As we continue on then, as we look at our passage then, what comes next? Well, now in verses 10 through 12, we have, if you will, our seventh point, which is the Lord's glorification of his servant. Okay, the story of the gospel, if it's good news, is not just about the unjust suffering of Jesus, his persecution, his sufferings on the cross, and his being buried, having died among sinners and in a rich man's grave. No, there needs to be a resurrection. There needs to be salvation that comes by a renewed life. Well, where is that at? Well, that's what verses 10 through 12 tell us. Listen carefully as we read Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet, don't you love the word yet? That's the word of saying, you think you got it all. There's something more coming. Qualify what you've heard. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, after this description of one who's been terribly abused and beaten and cut off and buried, having been rejected, you would think the story is over. No, it was God's will to crush him, to let him suffer this way as a substitute, to pay the price of sin, not for his sin, but for our sin, for we've all gone astray. The Lord has put him into this grief as our substitute. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, when Jesus has completed his suffering as our substitute, at that point, when the cross is done, when Jesus says it is finished, at that moment, that's where this prophecy is taking place. He shall see his offspring. He's not done. He's going to be buried, yes. Yes, he's died. But he's going to see his kids. Can I say this very gently? In recent days, I had a chance to be with one of my longtime childhood friends. And he's in stage four cancer. And I came to encourage him and to pray with him and make sure the gospel is deeply at work in his life. And as we prayed together, he said, you know, I'm in the Lord's hands. I'm not afraid to die. I sure hope I live long enough to see some more of my grandkids. There's no guarantee we shall see our offspring. The Lord says, He shall see His offspring. Those that are born again by the gospel of grace that comes through His Word and the Holy Spirit, He shall see them in spite of His death. The death of the cross and His suffering will not stop Him. He shall see His offspring. Why? Because He's going to prolong His days. His days are cut off. But they're not done. Good Friday has come, but Sunday was coming. The Lord said he's going to live. Now, great. There's the resurrection in our context right before our eyes. And he goes on to say, yes, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The gospel is a suffering Savior who bears our guilt and takes our place. And then a rising Savior that calls us to union with him that in his life we might live too. By faith we participate in his death. By faith we participate in his life. 
Death and resurrection are inseparable in the good news. The good news has been preached as God's will. And so, as his glorification continues to be outlined in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, there's so much theology in these words. I would love to have about three hours just to expound verse 11 with you. But you know what? When Jesus finished the cross and he was raised from the dead, out of the anguish of his soul, he's going to see his work and he's going to say, Oh, I wish I could have saved more people. There's so many people that just won't be saved because they won't come to me. He will be satisfied. Everyone for whom Christ died, every one of those will be believers and will be raised and will be saved. We call this definite atonement. I'd like to call it victorious atonement. Christ will not fail in his death. Everyone who's intended to be redeemed by his work, he will see them and say, it is finished and finished fully. I can tell I'm a Calvinist here, right? Like I said, I like a lot of hours to preach that, but you can work out the implications later, perhaps. Talk to Pastor John or Pastor Patrick about that. Okay, but notice it says, he'll be satisfied. He will finish his work successfully. Are you ever satisfied if you're uh, trying to do the best job and you don't get it done? not satisfied. But when you get it done, say, it's finished. It's going, oh, isn't that great? Praise God. Jesus was satisfied. He finished his work. Now, how about this? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Here's the Apostle Paul's doctrine of Romans right in front of your eyes. If you understand what this good news is, and you believe it, if you understand this knowledge, there is a righteousness that will be yours. And that is justification by faith. Read it again. It says, by his knowledge, I think a better translation of the Hebrew is, by the knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification by faith is the result of Christ's death and resurrection. Paul will say he was raised up for our justification. We're declared righteous in his victory. Why are we right? Because Christ has done it for us and he's successful before God. Well, what will result from this? Well, we'll realize that he shall bear their iniquities. It is Christ who ever takes away our sin, makes us righteous by his imputed righteousness, and therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many. Yeah, they divided his clothing and they gambled over it. But he's going to conquer all that. And what he will do is he will divide his spoils of victory. With who? His people. What he accomplished, he does it for us. I will divide him a portion with the many. Everyone for whom Christ died and has redeemed and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What That means that he's going to open up his kingdom. He says that where I am, I want you to be with me. What I have done, I've done so that you can share in the love I had with my Father before the foundation of the world, so that they might know how much love the Father and I have, that you are one with me and you're in my Father's house. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. If it were not so, would I have told you this? 
These are the blessings the Lord has won for us. He shares them with us, with as many people. And we are strong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has given us strength in, his we- in our weakness through His being poured out because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, I got a lot more to say and I tried to get it done within my time tonight. Let me just finish up with these simple thoughts. There were those that read this passage through the centuries and they said, you know what, this must be a Christian corruption of the text. There's too much Christianity in this. There's a lot of Christianity in this, wouldn't you agree? And that's the wonderful thing that happened in the 1940s when they discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know what they found when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? The entire book of Isaiah. And guess what? Isaiah 53 is right in there. And everyone knows that was written at least 200 years before Jesus ever came. It is a truly authentic part of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's the story of the gospel. Let's be conserved at least 700 years before Christ came. Doesn't that give you some assurance? That's how saved we are. God said it's true. But the question that we have to come to as we conclude tonight, we come back to verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you believe this? You've heard it. Do you believe it? I'm, not, I'm going to put myself in that us because I'm preaching with Isaiah tonight. Do you believe this? Who's believed? I would say, how can you not believe? What more evidence do you need? It's written fully before you. But I understand that we need the arm of the Lord to be revealed. And so as I prayed for this message tonight, I said, Lord, would your Holy Spirit come and touch every heart with saving faith? Because with all this evidence, our Jewish friends will not believe. Isn't that interesting? This is right before everybody to read. And many will not believe. Will you believe? Will you trust the Lord? And if you believe it tonight, it's because God's Spirit has come and applied this finished work of Christ to your heart so that you might believe. Well, thank God for His wonderful Word. I'll stop there. Let's just pray together. And if if John gives me a couple minutes, I'll answer some questions. If not, we're done. Lord, thank You for this privilege to study a passage that we could spend truly many, many weeks just plumbing its depths. We thank you for it, what it says to us. And now by your word and spirit, would you work saving faith in each of us? Lord, if it be your will, would you give us the assurance to know that we are yours and that what is written here is for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Time for a couple questions? Okay. Anybody have a question or comment? Tell me again when this was written. What's that? Tell me again when this was written. About at least 700 years. I think I usually say 800 years before Christ came. Is there, among those who are involved in textual criticism, is there, is there any dispute as to when this 
actually took place. Are, those, are there those critics who say it was written A.D.? They, they can no longer say that. There would have been those that could have said, well, you just, this could not. Prophecy is impossible. If you assume a naturalistic worldview that only cause and effect makes sense, no human being could have done this. So it had to be corrupted by somebody interpolating it. Well, we know that can't be the case. So now we have to explain it away some other way. It's there. So what was the matter with the critics say? Archaeology has removed any claim to say it was written post-Christ. Is, is Isaiah including the Septuagint? Yes. And when was the Septuagint written? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So uh, you think during the era of Alexander the Great, when the lingua franca of the world was Greek, uh, it was during that time there were various translations of the Old Testament. We, we call them the Septuagint. It's basically the, the uh, translation, the translators that gave us the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So I mentioned that earlier when I said when you come to Isaiah, where we, it talks about the good news in chapter 52, which is who's heard these things? We've heard, that's where we, the Greek word is euangelizomai, the word for gospel evangelical. Okay. So in as much as the, it's included in the Septuagint, and there's no one who disagrees with the time of the Septuagint being written, the very very worst case that the most harsh critic could come up with is that it was still 300 plus or minus B.C. That's right. The facts. Uh, so for those that say, I can't believe anything prophetic, I can't believe in the supernatural world, they're left with, it's just a crazy thing that was there at least 300 years before Christ. At least. But if you take biblical reckoning of the story of Isaiah, it's easily eight centuries or so before him. Anybody else? Okay. Well, the the best that the, one of the things they try to explain is that this passage is talking about Israel itself. In other words, the suffering servant is about Israel. Okay. So, okay, let's let's test it. Well, all the way through, Israel is addressed in you, plural. But we come to this verse that I mentioned, or I have, it's you, singular. What's going on here? That doesn't fit. Then further, uh, how does Israel save itself from its sin? Israel's gone astray like a sheep, and suddenly this, uh, this Israel's going to save itself from it. Further, the servant is always described as a singular person. It's not a corporate individual. It's a him. It's his. He. and Or you. Singular. So that to make it into a national identity, you have to depersonalize it, take it in an allegorical way, and then you have the problem of how Israel can save itself and save the world. And that doesn't fit. So you're, But that's the best they can do because it's too, too clear. Okay, maybe one more in the back. Can you stand up? Your voice is a little bit far for my old ears.
Well, I'm, I'm going to just say I'm a Paulinist. I want to I want to believe what Paul said. Right? Paul said that. And so, what he what he says in Romans nine through eleven, which is the passage you're appealing to, he will make this phrase. He says, "Not all who are of Israel are of Israel." He says, "You know, there's a real Israel and a corporate Israel that are not the same." And he makes it clear there were twin brothers before either done good or bad. God made us a decision. And so when it says I loved and hated, there's a debate as to what hated and loved means in that context. And if you put it in its historical context, that was a way of doing a will as you were in the process of saying, this is the child that I choose to bless and this is the child I choose not to provide in my estate. They're separated from the blessing. So at least that's one way to understand it, but it's clear that there's a divine choice. And Paul will underscore that by saying that a remnant will be saved. He doesn't say that. But then at the end of that very difficult passage, he says a branch has been broken off of the olive tree and a wild branch has been grafted in in chapter 11. That's the Gentiles. He says there will be a day when all Israel will be saved. Now we have an interesting question. What does all Israel mean? There are some that say that in the end of time when the Lord returns, they'll say, this was the Messiah after all, and I believe him. And they'll all agree. That's one interpretation. Another is at the end of history that both Jew and Gentile, as today who believe, finally the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and then all Israel will be saved because we've been grafted into that same olive tree. So it's a debated point. But whatever you take away in a quick answer... God is sovereign and he has his purpose being accomplished. And even in saying that, there's never any diminishment of human responsibility. That what Israel chooses to do, they're responsible for. But what they do is not outside of God's sovereignty. So the resolution between sovereignty and responsibility is never reduced in the Bible. They always are both affirmed. Many years ago, I read a book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he said, well, if you studied physics, a great question that comes up is light, a particle or a wave? Well, if any physicists are out there, you say, guess what? It's both. And when you're dealing with things that are unable to be described fully just through our empirical reasoning, there are things that he calls an antinomy, not a contradiction. Two things that are in tension with each other. Both are necessary for that system to operate. Light is both a wave and a particle, depending how you look at it. So I I like to finish that discussion by saying, if you look at my very flabby arm right here, it has triceps and biceps, and they're in contradiction with each other. When one pulls, the other weakens. And yet it's that tension that makes my motion possible. And that's the biblical sense, that responsibility and sovereignty Go hand in hand. So I say, absolutely, God is sovereign, but men are responsible. We have to stop with that because of time. Okay? Thanks. So I'm reminded uh, quickly um, when we bring up the concept of sovereignty. uh, On Thursday, we were told that uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, 19th century theologian, Prime Minister of the Netherlands said that there is not one square inch in the universe 
doesn't come underneath, or that does not, uh, over which Jesus does not say mine. And the reason why I bring that up is because my grandson is in town, and he didn't know my grandson because my grandson thinks it's all his. <laughs> uh, we're going to conclude by singing together 74 in your hymnal, Majesty. Now unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood, unto him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all. Appreciate you being here. Good night.